we see time and time again when our technology gets tested that it ends up bringing more value and better results, then we know we're on the right track. I think we're probably still one of the only companies out there that actually have this complete decision-making brain that works in real time and deflects attacks. Deal with reality, reconcile with reality as fast as you can. From GGV, this is Founder Real Talk, where we get real about the challenges that founders and startup executives face and how they've grown from tough experiences. I'm your host, Glenn Solomon. Without further ado, here's today's episode. On today's episode of Founder Real Talk, I'm joined by my colleague, Oren Younger. Hey, Oren. Hey, Glenn. And we're super excited to welcome Tomer Weingarten to the show. Tomer is the co-founder and CEO of Sentinel One, an autonomous endpoint cybersecurity platform with over 6,000 customers worldwide and ARR growth of 131% in the last reported quarter. Sentinel One prevents cyber attacks in real time using AI and machine automation and helps companies adopt new technologies while staying protected. Founded in 2013, Sentinel One has over 1,000 employees and has been recognized as one of the best and most diverse places to work. In June of 21, Sentinel One executed on one of the most successful cybersecurity IPOs to date, raising over $1 billion and has a market cap of significant many billions as we speak today. Today, we're going to explore how Sentinel One rose through the ranks of cybersecurity vendors and how Tomer and his team plan to reshape the industry. Tomer, it's so great to have you. Welcome to Founder Real Talk. Thank you so much. I mean, really, really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you both. Awesome. We wanted to start with a little bit of background on you. Before you founded Sentinel One, you worked as a software developer. You actually founded several companies prior. Was there a shift in mindset at some point where you shifted from, hey, I'm a software developer to I want to be a founder. I want to start companies. I think the shift was um, more kind of moving from software development into this understanding that I really enjoy building products, maybe not specifically coding them hands-on. I felt I was an okay developer. I don't know how my bosses felt, but at some point I really understood that my my strength was really in, in envisioning these products. And then, you know, later on, what it would mean to actually have the effect on how I take them to market and how inseparable that is between understanding what is the right product proposition, but then also understanding what would be the market reception, what is the best way to deliver something to the market. These things to me became you know very interchangeable and one of the same. So that to me was probably the biggest shift that I had. I was definitely kind of founder mentality all, all along. I mean, I, I never thought I need to go through this usual course of going to university or college. And I just picked up a book. I learned programming and I built things from scratch. And it turned out that people um, actually liked them and, and wanted to buy my companies. And um, now with Central One, I mean, we're taking it all the way, of course. It's an amazing story. Was there like a founding spark moment for you with Sentinel One? Do you remember what inspired you to start the company? And um, was there a specific problem you were seeing or or some opportunity that you felt existed? Uh, curious about how Sentinel One came to be. Through my teen years, we, my co-founder and I, and we know each other from basically the second grade, we've done kind of our first share of uh, 
of hacking for fun, definitely not for any profit. Obviously, I mean, we had that hacker mentality, that um, sometimes even um, offensive side mindset. And through the years, you know, he turned a complete cybersecurity professional. He became head of innovation at Checkpoint. He worked there for a few good years, I think about almost seven years. When we kind of uh, met up again, uh, I think it was right around 2012, and the attack landscape at that point was starting to shift rapidly. It, it was really clear that this new concept that people coined in APTs, so Advanced Persistent Threats, was really becoming the mode of operation for attackers. And back then, really the only solutions you had were either on the network side, so sandbox companies like FireEye back then, and the network companies, you know, the firewall companies were really the only thing that you could have deployed. The antiviruses, on the other hand, which, you know, have been around for about 20 years, have been complete useless traps to an extent to catch these types of attacks. And we felt like conceptually trying to protect enterprises via the network is all the shift of where the attackers were going, they'd really shifted towards the endpoint, toward the end devices. When you want to run malicious code, you got to run it on any device that can run code. We kind of said, look, endpoint protection has to evolve. It's clear that the antiviruses are just not going to cut it for the long run. And we kind of felt it's probably a good place to focus. And when you, you kind of take that and, you know, for us very early on, being so entrenched with software development, we also saw the cloud coming. So, you know, my previous startups, the ones that I built, were already on AWS before anybody really understood what's the effect that AWS would have. And we knew that come the cloud, the entire interchange between the endpoint and the network will change. And endpoints and the devices that we're all using are going to be basically interfacing directly with the cloud. And that's going to change the structure of the network and the perimeter itself. So we kind of felt device protection, endpoint protection, that's really the place to be. And then we kind of also, you know, thought, I mean, how can we try and predict attacks and not just constantly react to attacks? And there, the answer was relatively simple, machine learning and AI. So the more we can actually try and build more predictive algorithms that can anticipate what's happening on any given device, what we call behavior, then we might be able to build a model that would be able to discern bad from good with no prior knowledge whatsoever. And if we can pull it off in real time, and if the machine can be accurate enough in its decisions, then we can build true autonomous protection, which to us was something, you know, we haven't seen anybody else trying to do, probably even to date. I think we're probably still one of the only companies out there that actually have this complete decision-making brain that works in real time and deflects attacks. So that was going to be the inception point. And all of it was one big thesis, but we worked tirelessly to, uh, to make it a reality. That's great. I want to dive a little bit deeper. So you gave us the high levels of Sentinel-1, and obviously you guys have a, a big vision. You also touched on the fact that endpoint security isn't, isn't new. 
It's been around for, for decades. There's some large incumbents in this market. I remember I used them. Not a happy user, I would say. But you guys have definitely modernized this, this field. We use machine learning. Could you perhaps tell us how it works? And was this the plan from day one? Yeah, for sure. No one likes using antiviruses. I think that was kind of one of the thoughts that we had. It's like, man, no one has been trying to disrupt these folks for so long, yet no one really likes that software. And when you kind of dissect what is the antivirus and what does it do, it's a very static system that works typically on the base of signatures to basically say, what is this that you're now downloading or running on your on your machine? And do I know it? Do I know that it's bad? Do I have a signature for it? Do I recognize it? In our mind, I mean, it was a very inefficient system. Attackers have already found ways to devise polymorphic malware, which basically uses different signatures all the time. So it was very clear that you can't base anything on on signatures. I think then we saw reservoirs of signatures like VirusTotal, as an example, which a lot of vendors were just using to try and map out the universe of malware samples. But again, it's based on a signature. So when we turned to machine learning, the thesis was, let's step away completely from trying to understand whether something is malicious or benign just by the looks of it. And let's instrument in real time all the machine operations that happen once any type of code is executing on the system. And what we knew is that in all cases, malicious operation, malicious execution of programs takes a very different manifestation as it runs on the device. And if we could have actually trained our algorithms to understand how malicious execution looks like and how benign execution of program looks like, then we would have potentially a very robust system that doesn't care about what is it that's executing, but only what is the behavior that it's showing? What is that interaction with the CPU, interaction with the memory space, interaction with disk, interaction with the network? And those would forever look different Malicious attackers are just inherently doing things that you don't do as a benign user, and they go through many lengths to actually try and camouflage what they do so it looks benign. But if you look at all these minute changes at the operating system that a human can't, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. no human can actually decipher the million of events that happen during the execution of a program to find all these super small abnormalities, but a machine can, machine learning definitely can, and that's a classic usage of of machine learning, and and that's how we built our system. Definitely sounds innovative from the way I I knew how uh, some of the incumbents were working, but perhaps my next question would be specifically, how how do you persuade enterprises with this new vision and move away from the existing tools like Symantec and, and McAfee? and trend and trust a new startup that is coming in and, and saying all those fancy worlds makes a lot of sense, but you know, you're still a startup. How do you go about it? Yeah, it wasn't easy for sure. The first few years in this market, by the way, not, not only for us, but for, I think a lot of the upstarts in the space, it was an uphill battle, not just because you had to persuade all these folks, but also because we were basically aiming at the most critical part of security infrastructure. And that's, you know, just the toll 
and the responsibility that you have is almost unlike any other product in infrastructure as a whole. So the criticality, the, the critical nature of what we do was definitely an inhibitor to a lot of folks out there to immediately adopt next-gen technologies. But at the same time, what we had going for us and what this market had going for it is just the sheer amount of attacks that were compromising these solutions day in, day out. So when you get to the point that the efficacy for the incumbent product is below 50%, and that's a staggering number. It means that one out of every two attempts will succeed in compromising a machine. So when that happens, people have to look, people have to listen. And I think that was kind of what was happening over time is that people were just looking for better solutions and the tact that I think that we took and, and some of our competitors took uh, for a short period of time, I think some of our competitors are still using that tact, to be honest, but it was really running side by side. It was telling people, you know what? Don't remove it. I mean, you, you love the thing so much. You trust it so much. Don't remove it. Install us on top of it, but start seeing what we catch versus what they catch. Then maybe you see the light. And, and over time, we got completely certified to be a complete antivirus replacement. I remember that, you know, that was a big milestone for us. We basically told ourselves, if we can't prove that even though our model for detection is completely different, if we can't win in the same tests and certifications that the antivirus vendors were winning, how would people trust us? So we went through all of these different certifications, meeting the same type of PCI compliance regulatory needs. And we kind of said, look, I mean, every attestation out there tells you that this product is as good and probably much better than your legacy vendor. So you should have the comfort that you can actually, you know, replace it completely with a suite like ours. No question, it was one of the most, I think, fundamental shifts that happened in this market, and, and it took a lot of time, a few good years at least. Tomer, it sounds like you were very thoughtful in thinking through how to first kind of sit side by side and ultimately win market share with a superior product from incumbent and legacy legacy vendors who are strong and big companies. You're not the only upstart that has seen this opportunity in this space. In particular, we wanted to ask you about CrowdStrike, obviously a very strong company as well as Sentinel One. They've been very aggressive and executed extremely well. The question for you on them is some founders say we're competitor aware, we're customer obsessed, competitor aware. Some founders say that we are obsessed with our with our competition and obsessed with our customers. Where do, you, where do you guys fall on that continuum? How, how much time do you spend kind of looking at what they're doing? And just curious, when you have a strong competitor, like a lot of founders who listen to this podcast do, how you react to that? Do you set your own course and not really worry about the competitor? Or do you? how much time do you spend trying to focus on what they're doing? I'd say, you know, our, our competitors are quite obsessed with us. Uh, I mean, that's what it would seem in my mind, I honestly think that it's a big distraction just focusing on competition. I mean, when when we were a small upstart and you want to understand your competitive landscape, there's no question about it. And you want to keep tabs and you want to see how it evolves. No question about it. You want to understand what your competitors are doing. But in, in my book, what I want to understand about my competition is 
you know, not how many customers they have and not who, who they're winning and who they're taking or any of these perspectives. I want to understand two things. One, I want to understand their technology and I want to understand whether my approach has a significant advantage over the approach that they're taking. And I want to understand their go-to-market and do my go-to-market as any adjustments that it needs to go through to actually be superior to theirs or get a better reach. So when I look at competition as a whole, these are the things that, that I look at. I mean, I, ju I just want to be aware of those. I want to kind of understand what is the approach there? What is the strategy? What's the thinking? But then I got to say, I mean, for us, I mean, we we had our own strategy. We still have our own strategy. We're executing according to what we think is the right solution in this space, not what other things, not the noise in the space or not even the market education that the competitor is doing. If we feel like our approach is superior, if we see time and time again when our technology gets tested that it ends up bringing more value and better results, then we know we're on the right track. We kind of decided that we will continue down our path. Our competitors have actually took a lot of notice into what we're doing. We were the first ever cybersecurity company to actually buy a data analytics company, and we changed the market completely. Not many people even understood why are we doing this, but they immediately needed to react. And to us, it was, no, I mean, that that's part of our strategy. I mean, we were big believers day one that our superiority comes from our ability to process data. And seeing that immense proliferation of data in the enterprise, we also felt not only it's a big opportunity, but it's also something that can make our product, our platform, just much, much better, much, much faster, much more insightful, much more automated. And, and we kind of embarked on our own path. I think a lot of competitors from the ones you mentioned and, and all the way to Microsoft have took a lot of notice in what we do. We were one of the first companies to actually produce protection for Linux and Mac-based systems and for containerized workloads. So all in all, I mean, we, we kind of felt like the moment we saw the competition starting to copy us and imitate what we do, we kind of said, okay, this is really the point where we're the front seat and people are looking at what we do. So let's concentrate, let's focus, let's continue, you know, marching as fast as we can. Makes sense. Tomer, several, several months ago, Sentinel-1 raised over a billion dollars successfully completing, I think it was the biggest cybersecurity IPOs to date. So congrats, Tomer. Thank that's, you. That's incredible. When you first came to the US, you were long way from where you are today in terms of funding, and I'm sure personal growth. One of your investors was our good friends at UpWest. And I heard that an interesting story that you were set up in a communal housing. Could you perhaps talk to us a little bit about that? <laughs> yeah, for sure. And yes, we were. When we got started, we took, uh, I think, a, a very brave decision and kind of said, we're moving to Silicon Valley. Our market is in the U.S. Honestly, I mean, there's not much to be had in Israel in terms of, you know, disrupting the, the industry there. And also we felt like the investors that would get it would be would be really in Silicon Valley. And, and we kind of said, so how do we get here? We found, you know, UpWest and UpWest had this great program where they basically give you some chunk change 
and provide for housing, which is really all, all of what we needed. But then they obviously provide this great support network and kind of connective tissue to the entire valley. We, I think, joined six other startups and their founders in, in one giant house in, in Menlo Park, which was honestly one of the best experiences that I've had in, in my life. I mean, every person in that house was just phenomenal and we became good friends and it was just a great experience. I mean, also being immersed with other CEOs and, and CTOs and founders of other companies, somehow it turned out we were all very like-minded and, and we meshed up really nicely. And we haven't even had a couple of folks that actually knew how to cook, you know, pretty good food. So it turned out <laughs> that's important in that perspective as well. But it was, you know, a very, very special experience. It, it went on for three months, right? So, you know, in the grand scheme of things, it was a very, very short period of time. But in those three months, we actually went from a presentation into a prototype and our first seed round of funding. And it was a meaningful acceleration. I mean, I think we, we kind of believed that we would be able to come here and, and raise our first round of funding. And it might take, you know, call it nine months to a year. And if we do it via a program like UpWest, we will just be accelerating it and it might happen faster, which eventually did happen. That's great. In addition to fundraising, how important was the early move from Israel to the U.S. early on and sent in one journey and, and for you as a CEO and this notion of the world is becoming more globalized, pandemic is still at large. Would you recommend young Israeli entrepreneurs to follow a similar pattern, perhaps without the communal housing? <laughs> I, I would suggest the communal housing. No, I, I'm kidding. Um, I'm sure it doesn't work for everybody. And, and I wasn't sure it's going to work well for me, by the way, but, but it turned out great. I think for us at that point in time, the state of the world at that point in time, it was imperative. I think that today things are a bit different, right? I mean, I think that obviously the pandemic changed many things. And, and even the way that we interface today how mainstream video conferencing had become, closing business via video conferencing, it really changed completely, I think, how we interact. And back then, it wasn't really the case. Back then, I think it was relatively hard for any Israeli entrepreneur to be 100% US-focused. Even if you had Zoom back then, I still think that it doesn't really replace the learnings of the actual market, the actual feedback, meeting with people, having the casual conversations. So to me, and again, I would say that the first year at Central One was really geared towards getting customer feedback. I mean, it wasn't about selling any product. I mean, we basically had a beta and we were working very hard to devise some working prototype. But at the same time, my role, and I basically spent half of my time in Israel and half of my time in the U.S. in the first couple of years in Israel with the R&D team. Our core R&D team was there. Today, it's everywhere. But my role here was really meet with as many prospective customers as you possibly can and get the feedback, present what the concept is, get all the pushback, get all the the soft spot, get all the, the things that don't make sense to them, and then come back and see, what do we do with it? Do we feel like it's something material? Do we not? Do we work around it? Um, do we address it? Do we feel like we still have the right way? That was, to me, probably the most important part. And then, obviously, you know, funding was also relatively easier when you hear boots on the ground and 
can travel up and down Sand Hill and meet, you know, seven investors in in uh, in the course of a day. That's really great. Being close to customers seems that helps you accelerate your company so much more. One other thing you guys have done to accelerate is acquisition. One in particular, scalar, fairly sizable acquisition. We wanted to ask you a little bit about what you think now having done an acquisition or two, like any rules of the road or things that you look out for or would, would recommend to other founders who are facing acquisition opportunities as to what they should be thinking about when they do them? It's kind of funny because I have by now, I think the two perspectives, both as a founder that got, I think, close to, I think it was six or seven M&A offers during our journey here with, with Sentinel-1, but also the acquisition that we've done, we've done it as a private company, which is relatively anomalous, right? I mean, not, not yeah, many companies actually, actually do that. And, you know, it's definitely not, not an easy feat. But at the same time, I think to us, it was not, you know, a mega blockbuster acquisition. It was really a very strategic acquisition. And, and we kind of felt like it's so important that we we want to go out of our way to to actually do it. But, but we also had, I think, from the get-go, a thesis of how we wanted to integrate the business and how do we see the two businesses going forward into the future and the ripple effect it would have on our overall business for years to come. So... To me, I mean, A, it was really, really important to outline that strategy to the founders of, of that business and basically say, look, this is what we intend to do. This is how, we, how we're thinking about it. And if it makes sense to you, then let's work through the diligence to prove the thesis that we can actually do it. If it doesn't make sense to you, then maybe there's not a great fit here because the culture fit, you know, especially at the early stages, it is, it's an imperative, right? I mean, we're not Cisco or we're not Cisco yet. We can't just acquire somebody and then kind of treat it as, as another function and, and just look at the, the line item and, and the bottom line of what that acquisition would, would output. We take a much more holistic view into each and every one of these acquisitions. And, and the integration to me was really important to, to get clarity on, I think, from the get-go. And, and that's what we've done, I think, very well with that acquisition and hopefully more to come. But I think that, that truly the way you envision the businesses and how they how they really interact, what, what type of uh, symbiotic relationship you can develop between these businesses as you kind of embark on M&A, that's a really important piece and, and getting clarity on how integration looks like into the future. And then as an acquirer, validating that through the diligence portion of the transaction, you know, sometimes these things pan out exactly as you think. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes you find mitigative measures as you make these acquisitions. But all in all, I think in my view, at my stage, a lot of it is, is really around the, the integration piece and how it looks into the future. Uh, super insightful. I know a lot of companies are going about acquisitions uh, in different ways, and, and it seems like you're definitely strategic about it. That's really uh, great to hear. Switching gears here, last year and the one before, I guess 2020 and 2021, Tomer, you were named top 50 CEOs. Congrats. And Sentinel One received recognition for its company culture and diversity. What do you think makes your company such a great place to work? That's an easy one. I mean, it's, it's the people for sure. 
the people that work here are just exceptional. And I think they come here for the right reasons. And, and I think that there's so much talk right now in the industry as a whole on talent and recruiting and the scarcity of great talent. And I truly think that at the end of the day, folks need to choose where they're going and who they want to work with and just figure out whether they gravitate towards the mission of the company and the core DNA of the company. And saying, hey, you know, we come in every day with a smile on our face. I mean, that's not culture. I mean, that's wishful thinking. I can guarantee there are some days the smile is not there. There are going to be some painful days. So a lot of it is really understanding what is the impact that I'm making? What is the mission? What does this company really stand for? And I think we made it front and center, what we believe in, what we think. And we kind of said, look, I mean, we don't force anybody to come work here. If it resonates with you, if you like working with good people, not just good professionals, but good people, you know, people that will choose to do the right thing, people that don't necessarily are just looking to be successful at their job, but really making to look everybody successful, making to have everybody succeed. I think that just had a kind of a ripple effect where it just grew more and more people that it, it just resonated with. And it just turned out to be this great place to work. I think another big component there is just having mutual respect amongst all people. That kind of talks to the diversity element. I think we we truly don't make any exception towards anybody. And we expect everybody to treat everybody else with complete mutual respect. And, and I think that, again, it's something that permeates throughout the entire organization. And it makes a difference. I think it's a lot of small or maybe not small, but intangible things, but they make a huge difference at the end of the day. I'm glad. I mean, I'm glad we're getting the, the recognition. Again, I don't think we, we've done any of it for any recognition. We're just, we are who we are. And, and I think the recognition comes because it comes. I mean, we're, we're not driving anything. It's much like, you know, we were recognized as one of the fastest growing companies I think we were number seven in the U.S. like a couple of years ago. And that was probably the first time that we realized that we're growing so, so fast because we weren't doing things to earn rewards. We were just doing our day to day in the best way that we could. And it turned out that we're a pretty good company. Well, speaking of a, a pretty good company, your financial results have been awe-inspiring. You said before you're not Cisco, at least not Cisco yet. Look into the crystal ball for us. If we get to do another episode with you in two to three years, where do you want Sentinel One to be at that point? Yeah, it's a it's a tricky one to answer because I can't really look through my crystal ball. But I do think that there are just an endless amount of opportunities in software today. Being in the field that we are, being this deep technology company that transforms infrastructure and the pace of change right now in the world, the antiquated legacy infrastructure that's out there. I just see so much opportunity for the company and so many different vectors of growth. To me, I mean, this is this is truly, and I know everybody says that, right? It's just a part of our journey. You know, it's just a milestone. But honestly, it, it is. I mean, we're here. The fact that we, we IPO'd, I think, didn't change much for us. I mean, we're operating as a public company for about a year or two prior to it. And, and that honestly made the IPO journey um, relatively 
as much as can be it can be said, but a straightforward one. And now it's just, you know, let's keep on executing, let's keep on kind of iterating and you know refining our strategy. But there's there's so much opportunity and we have such a great engine, such a great company, such great technology. I truly am, you know, I'm excited about what's to come. That that's the best I can put it. So are we great to hear that you you have that enthusiasm for the future. We're at the uh, part of our episode where we're going to go into the speed round. You're in the hot seat now. Just answer the first thing that comes to mind. What book or article would you recommend for founders? I'd recommend any article on cutting edge, latest developments in quantum science. That's uh, quantum physics. I think it's an imperative. Tom, we know you're an avid basketball player. Who is the best basketball player of all time? Michael Jordan. That's an easy one. Who is the best Israeli basketball player of all time? Uh, that's a tough one. Um, I, I always liked Doran Schaefer. I, I really liked him. Warren and I had the chance to spend a little time with Omri Caspi when we were in Israel recently. And um, maybe he's listening, so uh, you may have him to answer to after that. I mean, he's one of the great ones, that's for sure. But my, my era is a bit different. Super nice guy. What's your best piece of advice for aspiring founders? Deal with reality. Reconcile with reality as fast as you can. Don't avoid hard decisions. Don't avoid you know hard conversations. Don't avoid hard acts. That's awesome. Love that piece of advice. There's so many times where decisions get difficult and people know the right answer in their gut and they avoid sometimes making those decisions because they're hard and they always regret not making those decisions quickly. I love that piece of advice. Thanks so much, Tomer. This has been fantastic. A great episode. Anybody listening can now see why Sentinel One has been so successful and why you have so much enthusiasm and optimism about the future. Really appreciate you joining us and uh, looking forward to maybe doing that episode in a couple of years with an update. Hopefully. Thanks a lot and truly appreciate the kind words. Thank you. Thank you, Tomer. You've been listening to Founder Real Talk. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcast app to help others find this podcast. If you have any questions you'd like us to ask our guests or founders you'd like to hear on this podcast, feel free to email us at founderrealtalk at ggvc.com. Our theme music is by Grapes. GGV Capital is a global venture capital firm that invests in local founders. As a multi-stage sector-focused firm, GGV focuses on seed to growth across social internet, enterprise tech, and smart tech. The firm was founded in 2000 and manages $9.2 billion in capital across the U.S., Canada, China, Southeast Asia, India, Latin America, and Israel. Past and present portfolio companies include the likes of Affirm, Airbnb, Alibaba, Big Commerce, Grab, HashiCorp, Opendoor, Peloton, Poshmark, Slack, Square, Wish, Zendesk, and many more. The firm has offices in Silicon Valley, San Francisco, Singapore, Shanghai, and Beijing. Learn more at ggvc.com or follow us on Twitter at, at GGV Capital. <laughs>